Welcome to season three of What Really Happened, executive produced by Seven Bucks Productions, Dwayne Johnson, Danny Garcia, and Brian Gewertz in association with Cadence 13. It's written and hosted by me, Andrew Jenks, and you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Andrew Jenks. March 13th, 2019. It's sometime after 9 p.m. It's a cloudy Tuesday night in an exclusive area in Staten Island. A father and his family are having dinner. Outside the driveway is their car, a 2017 Cadillac Escalade. Meanwhile, a driver rides his GMC Sierra pickup truck around the area. The driver of this pickup truck then stops in front of the family's parked Cadillac Escalade. Next, the driver backs his pickup truck into the front of the Escalade and hits it. The front license plate of the Escalade falls off. The father gets up from dinner and opens the door. What was that? Perhaps a simple, silly mistake. He and the driver shake hands in the front lawn and take a look at the damage. At this point, the man driving the pickup truck says he is there to arrest the father. He even takes out handcuffs. The only thing is that he's not a police officer. The father isn't sure what's going on. They begin arguing. It depends on who you ask, but the father then makes a furtive action with his hand towards his belt area. The driver decides to go into his car, grab a gun, and shoots the father 11 times in the chest. The father is dead. This will certainly make headlines. Because as it turns out, the man driving the car just murdered Francisco Cali, a.k.a. Frankie Boy, the head of the Gambino crime family. The media can't believe it. Officials are investigating the attack as a possible mob hit. This is a story that truly reads like a Hollywood movie. A stunning gangland hit. A brazen shooting straight out of a crime drama. Frankie Boy, 53 years old, in charge of the most powerful mob family in history, wasn't killed and dumped in the ocean or hidden in some car trunk. Nope. Frankie Boy was just gunned down in the front of his home. Who would do that? Why would someone do that? What really happened? The mafia or the mob, traditional organized crime, uh, as we understand it from the 20th century, it took a huge hit in the 80s and 90s. Jeff Schumacher is a senior director of content at the National Museum of Organized Crime and Law Enforcement, also known as the Mob Museum. How cool is that? He's been a journalist in Las Vegas for over 25 years. And the reason for that was the, uh, the RICO Act. Uh, the RICO Act allowed the federal government to go after large numbers of members of these organized crime groups all in one fell swoop. And to take them down, whether they could prove that one individual committed a particular crime or not, as long as they were associated with it, could, that could be proven, then they could be sent to prison. So there was just a decimation of a lot of these traditional organized crime groups around the country. What we do know is that organized crime, traditional organized crime, still exists in New York City and New Jersey, still involved with loan sharking, still involved with bookmaking, still involved with bid rigging uh, when it comes to unions, construction companies and unions. They have still have a lot of influence in that area. 
And so there are still some of these sort of classic rackets, if you will, that these mob families are involved in. One organized crime group that's still out there is the Gambino crime family. The Gambino crime family is is one of the oldest mafia families in New York and really making it one of the oldest in America. It can trace its roots all the way back to the first decade of the 20th century. And there it's you know it's had its ups and downs but for a big portion of the 20th century the Gambinos were the most powerful, you know, La Cosa Nostra family in America. The Gambino mob bosses didn't tend to shy away from the limelight. A lot of high-profile individuals, you know, in particular, John Gotti comes to mind. Um, You know, he was someone who was in the limelight, kind of enjoyed that, and, you know, had a little bit too high of a profile. In 2012, Francisco Cali, a.k.a. Frankie Boy, took over as the boss. But unlike some of the prior Gambino bosses, Frankie Boy had a different approach. So Frank Kelly is not a household name. He kept a very low profile, unlike a John Gotti, or maybe he learned you know, from those mistakes, but uh, he kept a very low profile. And the fact that so few people knew who Frank Kelly was when he died was a testament to the fact that he kept such a low profile and that he was able to operate this, you know, this crime syndicate uh, without a lot of attention being paid. He was able to just run the family business, the crime business, uh, without being preoccupied and distracted by the media and the courts and uh, other conflicts that uh, John Gotti created within his own organization and beyond. This is why when Frank Cowley was murdered, most couldn't believe it. He wasn't flashy. He wasn't in public feuds. Even when I search for images of him, only a handful come up. Hardly any videos, certainly no interviews, nothing. So why did a boss who stayed out of the limelight get killed? As it turns out, for the Gambino family, this wasn't a totally new thing. Well, I think if you look at the characteristics of of the family over time, I mean, one of the unfortunate characteristics of the Gambinos is they tend to assassinate their, uh, their bosses. And this goes back all the way to 1928, when one of the early bosses, Toto D'Aquila, was assassinated. Almost every, every Gambino boss after that, uh, until Carlo at Gambino, uh, were, were assassinated in one way or another. So then, investigators, the media, even mafia historians started thinking, well, who? Who from the inside wanted Frank Cali out? People began pointing their finger at one guy in particular— the younger brother of John Gotti. After being behind bars for 29 years, Gene Gotti was released only a few months before Callie's murder. Did Gene want control? You know, there was a a guess that perhaps he wanted to take over the family again. And, you know, people were starting to draw these connections, like, oh, he might uh, want to kill Frank Callie for this reason, or there was this kind of a history between them. But the guy's 79 years old, I believe, and uh, maybe uh, he's definitely not uh, in the mood for that after having served such a long term in prison. And I think Kelly was doing a pretty good job by most accounts. So, um, you know, I think Gene Gotti was unfairly, uh, unfairly brought, you know, the broad brush of looking for some kind of a, of, of a mob conspiracy behind the murder really painted him 
as as a bad guy in this case, and it, it probably wasn't well. It wasn't justified. It turned out quickly. Other reports started popping up. Maybe it was someone else in the family. Even if not true, an internal mob uprising would sell papers. I mean, it's fantastic clickbait. It was like almost like hopeful conclusions that, oh, we've got a big story here because it's the start of a mob war or something. Um, and, you know, the tabloids in New York love that kind of material. I found this clip of a reporter asking an NYPD official, Given the potential organized crime element, are you concerned about retaliation or even a greater mob war restarting? But there continued to be no evidence that this was a mob hit, much less any signs that there was some sort of mafia war breaking out. Now, remember I said that Callie wasn't killed and dumped in the ocean or hidden in some car trunk? Instead, Frankie Boy was gunned down in front of his home. There was no attempt to hide it. Well, there is a reason that means something. Two days after the murder, while police were still looking for the killer, an odd thing happened. TMZ, I know, TMZ, ran into the former Godfather actor and friend of many mobsters, Gianni Russo. And he seems to have been one of the first people to say publicly he wasn't so sure this was a mob hit. The thing is why I don't think this is an Italian hit is, or a family hit is because they shot him in front of his family's house. They, they, don't do that. they don't do that. As it turns out, Gianni Russo was on to something. Suddenly, all the rumors of a mob war went away. Law enforcement found the murderer. On March 16th, just three days after the attack, the police tracked down 24-year-old Anthony Camillo. Anthony's GMC pickup truck was parked outside his parents' driveway at a vacation home in the Jersey Shore. Again, Anthony wasn't hiding anything. It's not like the car was hidden somewhere. Anthony immediately confessed to the murder. It seemed like he didn't think he did anything wrong. The story then took a strange turn. Apparently, Anthony was hoping to go out with Callie's niece. But Callie didn't think Anthony was good enough for her and didn't allow the two to see each other. So Anthony wanted the uncle gone. It was a crime of passion. The uncle just happened to be the head of the Gambino family. But then, another twist. It wasn't that either. At a hearing in New Jersey, Anthony appeared in a green and white pinstriped prison jumpsuit. He grinned a few times during the hearing. He seemed at ease. And then people saw the palm of his right hand. Using a blue pen, he wrote MAGA forever. He also had written United We Stand and Patriots in Charge. In the middle of his hand, he wrote the letter Q. It was impossible to miss. This got everyone wondering. Did this murder actually have nothing to do with a mafia war, much less Frankie Boy's niece, but instead something else? Sure enough, the defense didn't mention anything about a niece. Instead, they said, quote, Beginning with the election of President Trump in November 2016, Anthony Camillo's family began to notice changes to his personality. He began to take an interest in politics, something he had not previously been involved in. Approximately five to six weeks prior to the incident, which gives rise to this case, Mr. Camello, the defendant in this case, became increasingly vocal about his support 
for quote-unquote QAnon, a conspiratorial fringe right-wing political group. The case of uh, Anthony Camello allegedly killing Frank Kelly is the clearest example of, of someone dying as a consequence of, of uh, actions motivated by a QAnon follower. This is Travis View, a QAnon expert and researcher who is also the co-host of the QAnon Anonymous podcast. Well, if you've never heard of QAnon, it's, it's, it's basically it's an incredibly complex, far-reaching conspiracy theory. But the broad outlines of it, of QAnon, are this, is that there is a worldwide cabal of satanic sex traffickers who control the world. And these individuals, they run everything. They run all, they control politicians, they control the media, they control Hollywood, they control even the highest reaches of business. And uh, this sort of this cabal would have continued indefinitely, um, doing every, anything that they wanted to, and fooling the world, and uh, sacrificing and uh, you know sex trafficking children, were not for the election of Donald Trump. In the QAnon narrative, Donald Trump knows all about this uh, evil cabal, and he is working with a uh, group of people known as Q Team in order to dismantle it. And Q Team is a group of individuals thought to be military intelligence close to Donald Trump. And uh, Q-Team is slowly revealing the details of this operation to dismantle the, the cabal through a uh, series of posts on the currently down image board 8chan. That's uh, basically what they believe. Anthony clearly thought he was part of this operation. His own defense said, as part of his, the defendants, that's Camillo, as part of his delusion, the defendant believed that he had been given secret knowledge about the deep state and that Q, as in QAnon, was communicating directly with him so that the defendant could play a grand role in the conflict to save the American way of life. The defense added, in addition to politicians and celebrities, Mr. Camillo concluded that the deep state also includes individuals associated with organized crime. He ardently believed that Francisco Cali, a boss in the Gambino crime family, was a prominent member of the deep state and accordingly an appropriate target for a citizen's arrest. In fact, it wasn't the first time Camillo had planned a citizen's arrest. Anthony attempted to make a number of citizen's arrests of politicians. He had gone to a federal courthouse saying he wanted to make an arrest of Democratic representatives Adam Schiff and Maxine Waters. The next day, he tried to do the same with Mayor Bill de Blasio. The citizen's arrest explains why Anthony showed up to Callie's place with handcuffs, and the defense argues that was his only intention. They wrote in court documents that, quote, while the two men were standing near their respective vehicles, Mr. Camello informed Mr. Callie of his true intention to effect a citizen's arrest and ordered Mr. Callie to submit to detention. The defendant had brought handcuffs with him and planned to restrain Mr. Cali and bring him to the appropriate authorities to answer for the criminal actions which Mr. Camillo believed he had taken part in. After a heated exchange, Mr. Cali made a furtive action with his hand, and Mr. Camillo became afraid for his life. He reached into his vehicle, withdrew his gun, and shot Mr. Cali in self-defense. Now, of course, that is what the defense is saying. The defense, in fact, told the judge in court that Mr. Callie had a gun. 
but an assistant U.S. attorney at the U.S. Department of Justice said no weapon was recovered in Callie's vehicle or inside his home. Whether Callie had a gun or not, I think the idea of Anthony having the time to go to his car to grab a gun and kill someone, kill someone you were there to illegally arrest, doesn't sound like self-defense. It sounds like it was part of the game plan. In Anthony's mind, it seemed like this was the reasonable next move. Participating in QAnon is very different than typical conventional political participation. It's different first and foremost in that it's a very gamified experience. By gamified experience, Travis is referring to the fact that one can sit at their computer for hours or days on end. You search for information and post about it, oftentimes relentlessly. People in the QAnon community, they are given these clues in the form of the Q drops, and they are sort of tasked to uh, search and research, they, they feel like, uh, them, themselves. Now, in practice, they always wind up uh, you know, researching to themselves to absurd conclusions. And it's also different in that um, QAnon basically promises uh, participants that they can help change the world just by posting at their computer and, um, and uh, getting the word out about QAnon, essentially. And, uh, and this is in conventional uh, political participation involves a lot more, uh, you know, canvassing, you know, volunteering, texting people, donating money. In Q, they feel uh, like they are being part of some sort of grand revolutionary uh, movement. So who is Anthony Camillo, a 24-year-old who fell for a conspiracy theory and believed in this grand revolutionary movement? How did he get to this point? So who is Anthony Camillo? The article which comes closest to understanding Camillo's background was written by Ali Watkins and titled A Conspiracy Theorist, Anthony Camillo and a Mystery Motive in Gambino Murder. In the article, Watkins reports that Anthony's mom was an executive at Bloomberg and his father a construction worker. Anthony lived with his parents in what's been described as a spacious two-story home. He seems to have kept to himself unless his temper got the best of him. Staten Island prosecutor Carrie Lowe said Anthony's family wanted him out of his house. They were encouraging him to get an apartment of his own. Anthony tried different drugs in high school. Watkins reported that people who knew Anthony said he, quote, could be aggressive when he was high. Anthony started a Facebook group which explored the cost of different types of marijuana. And this is where a larger question of drugs comes into play. Watkins reported, quote, but as high school friends matured and moved forward, Mr. Camillo spiraled downward. By adulthood, his drug habit had escalated into a serious problem. According to three friends, Mr. Camillo wrestled with drug addiction and pop pills, including Oxycontin. Oxycontin, a drug responsible for substantially contributing to the nation's opioid crisis. One Facebook post of Anthony's is a message to a friend who passed away because of suspected prescription painkiller use. Anthony wrote, Miss you, buddy, and love you. Perhaps the story of Anthony Camillo isn't as unique as I first thought. QAnon followers do believe that they have the support of President Trump, and they believe that he is actively working to help them and protect them and looking out for their best interests. Even though President Trump has made no statement about Q, he's never given the indication he is even aware of QAnon. 
even though President Trump has never explicitly endorsed QAnon or even directly acknowledged QAnon, I think it's pretty clear that the White House and the Trump 2020 campaign are fairly cozy with QAnon. And the reason I say that is that Trump has retweeted QAnon uh, accounts, quote tweeted or retweeted QAnon accounts over 25 times. A QAnon follower, Stacey Dash, uh, co-chairs the Women for Trump initiative as part of the Trump 2020 campaign. So a QAnon follower is advising the Trump campaign. In addition to that, uh, Brad Parscale, who is the Trump 2020 uh, campaign chair, he uh, he invited uh, Bill Mitchell, who is a QAnon follower, to the White House and, and met with him. There's also a case in which there's this live stream called Patriot Soapbox that uh, that sort of talks about QAnon all day long. One of the one of the co-hosts of Patriot Soapbox was invited to the August first um, Cincinnati, Ohio Trump uh, rally. So even though the, the Trump has never explicitly sort of uh, uh, endorsed QAnon, he's also never really. Uh, the Trump campaign hasn't distanced itself from QAnon either because – and the reason for that, I suspect, is that you know a, a vote from someone who believes that JFK Jr. is alive is just as valuable as someone who understands that he, he died in uh, 1999. Because of his self-perceived status in QAnon, Camillo believed he was enjoying the protection of President Trump himself and that he had the president's full support. His lawyer wrote in a filing, the defendant did not and still does not believe that killing Mr. Callie was wrong. Rather, he believes that he did his patriotic duty to defend both himself as well as the United States from a dangerous criminal, and therefore killing Mr. Callie was actually morally right under the circumstances. Now, my only outstanding question is, and this could change everything, can Camillo's defense lawyers present an insanity defense? I ask because I saw in court documents filed by the defense that they intend to present evidence of, quote, mental disease or defect. The government is charging Camillo with second-degree murder, which likely means a life sentence. Camillo's lawyers are expected to provide psychiatric examinations which demonstrate a mental disease. We often see uh, the people who are most vulnerable to Q are people with pre-existing mental health issues. I don't think that um, you know, Q makes people uh, suffer from serious mental health issues, but I, I do see very frequently that people who already have uh, mental health issues, uh, you know, Q becomes very attracted to them, and they may you know, become involved in the Q community instead of uh, seeking help that, they might, that might actually benefit them. So what could the outcome of this case mean moving forward? I will say that it will be an interesting precedent if um, if it is discovered that Anthony Camello can't be held legally liable for killing Frank Calley because he was so enmeshed in this QAnon world. I think it has interesting implications for the law to say that someone who is basically trapped in this alternate fantasy world is less legally liable than the rest of us who live in the real world. Based on the facts that are presented, and my understanding of the defense's argument, my opinion is that Anthony Camillo should not be treated differently than other murderers. It's impossible to evaluate someone from afar, much less for me, not a psychologist, but it does seem like he is mentally unstable. But aren't a lot of people who commit murder? I'm not a lawyer, but to say he fell for a conspiracy theory 
via a gamified experience doesn't hold up. By their logic, could you say some members of Al-Qaeda who joined as children should be treated differently? Aren't some of them young people who got sucked into believing something that isn't real? Unfortunately, alternative universes are starting to not feel like they are so alternative. For more and more, it is the real world. And they will kill if they believe it is part of their objective. The death of Frank Cali, of all people, shows that the spread of misinformation will likely continue to kill people. Law enforcement sources have said they expect an assassination attempt against Anthony. The New York Post reported one officer saying, the general feeling is that there's an X on this guy's back. Killing the head of a mob family will do that. Camillo's parents, likely afraid of retribution and thus their lives, were seen leaving their Long Island home and have reportedly been in hiding, their whereabouts unknown. The next court date for 24-year-old Anthony Camillo is this week. Next week on What Really Happened, George Hughley, a University of Virginia college lacrosse player who seemingly had it all, killed his girlfriend, Yardley Love. The story quickly became national news. But only recently has something extraordinary been released. A tape which shows an interview with George as he unknowingly spells out exactly how he murdered his girlfriend. That's next week on What Really Happened. If you like the podcast, I'd humbly ask you to subscribe, rate, and review. It actually can make a big difference. For any other feedback, you can reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram, Facebook, at Andrew Jenks, or go to jenkspod.com for more information on the sources for this podcast.